Hello, and welcome back to Gastro News, our series of podcast episodes walking you through some of the most important topics you need to be aware of as a gastroenterology trainee today. My name is Stephen, and I'm a doctor and teaching fellow currently working at East Surrey Hospital, just south of London. We've already learnt a huge amount together over the course of this series so far, and you'll be pleased to know that we're not finished yet. On this episode, we're going to be thinking about the management of upper GI bleeds, and to do that, I'm delighted to say that once again, we've been joined by a real expert in the field. Today's guest is Dr. Manira Rachman, who has been a gastroenterology consultant at the Surrey and Sussex Healthcare Trust since September 2016. Some of her main interests include inflammatory bile disease and medical education. She qualified in medicine from St. Bart's Hospital Medical School with an intercalated Bachelor of Science degree in Pharmacology from King's College London. She then undertook gastroenterology and general medical specialist training and spent her years as a trainee split between the Oxford and South London deaneries. And in addition to all that, she has also spent time as a clinical research fellow at Oxford University. It's a real thrill to have her company for this episode. And as I said, we're focusing on everything you need to know about GI bleeds on this one. So, to start things off, I asked Dr. Rachman to explain for us what the main signs and symptoms of an upper GI bleed are when we're assessing a new patient in hospital. The main symptoms to suggest an upper GI bleed are hematemesis, so what we mean by that is vomiting of fresh blood, melina, which is black tarry stool, which is suggestive of an upper GI bleed, but perhaps more not actively bleeding, so a recent bleed. Then there's coffee ground vomiting, which often is actually due to non-GI pathology and more common in the elderly with other comorbidities, but um, sometimes it is suggestive of an upper GI bleed. Then you have patients who come in with anemia and might not have any overt bleeding. And then you should suspect, you know, in a patient who's had presyncope or syncope or a collapse at home, those are the types of patients that we would suspect an upper GI bleed. And one other possibility is a brisk, fresh PR bleeding, a hematochesia, that can be suggestive of a brisk um, upper GI bleed. So those are some of the things we might see in patients, but what are some of the most common causes Generally speaking, we divide the causes into non-varicele bleeding causes and varicele bleeding. By far, the most common cause is non-varicele in really up to uh, sort of 80 to 90% of patients and then the rest are varicele. So within the non-varicele group, the most common cause is peptic ulcer disease with duodenal ulcers being more common than gastric ulcers. And then we have other causes uh, such as esophagitis, gastritis, duodenitis within the non-varicele group. And then within the varicele group, we have esophageal varicele bleeding or gastric varicele bleeding. And then there are sort of less common causes such as a Mallory Weiss tear and also a Dulafoy lesion and malignancy as well. Do you ever use screening tools like the Glasgow Blatchford score or the Rockle score when you're managing potential GI bleeds? Yes, uh, so the Glasgow Blatchford score is uh, very useful in 
assessing those patients who will require hospital admission and also a need for interventions such as blood transfusion, endoscopic therapy and possible surgery. So really before a patient goes for endoscopy, this is a sort of screening tool to really identify those patients who will need to stay in hospital and uh, will probably need some sort of intervention. Studies have suggested a score more than six is predictive of those patients who need intervention. And those patients who have a score of zero or one, the patients should be assessed clinically and they may be fit for discharge with an outpatient endoscopy. But they should be assessed clinically first. If you do want to admit someone to hospital with a suspected GI bleed, what are the first steps that you take in managing them? Yeah, so really you approach a patient with a suspected bleed, you have to check for really hemodynamic instability or stability. So go through the ABCDE approach uh, for any patient who's come in with a suspected upper GI bleed. So if the patient is unstable, we would suggest giving um, normal saline at 500 mils bolus within like 10-15 minutes and then reassess their hemodynamic status and if there is active bleeding then the need for transfusion must be thought about and patients given a blood transfusion but it's also important not to over transfuse so we uh, try and follow more of a restrictive blood transfusion policy so aiming for hemoglobin of 70 to 80 but that does depend on whether the patient has pre-existing ischemic heart disease or respiratory disease and if they're symptomatic they may need slightly higher blood transfusion um, requirement um, up to sort of 80 90 is there a reason why you don't want to over transfuse Yes, yeah, so uh, there have been studies to suggest that if you over-transfuse patients that actually they're at a high risk of complications and uh, mortality rate. So the guidelines do suggest more of a restrictive policy now. And also, particularly in those patients who present with a variceal bleed, the reason we try not to over-transfuse is because this can actually increase the pressure and actually cause patients to bleed even more. So certainly for patients with a variceal bleed we would try not to over transfuse how soon after someone presents with a likely gi bleed would you try and perform endoscopy is there a time frame that you need to do this within yeah, so the guidelines do suggest that all patients with a, a suspected upper GI bleed have a, an endoscopy within 24 hours, unless the patient continues to be unstable, in which case uh, a more urgent endoscopy may be warranted once they're in a more stable position. How soon after someone presents with a likely GI bleed would you try and perform endoscopy? Is there a time frame that you need to do this within? Yes, so patients with a suspected variceal bleed, we would give terlipressin, two milligrams, four times a day IV, and also IV antibiotics to reduce the risk of bacterial infection, which we know is much more common in cirrhotics who have decompensated. That actually increases their mortality as well. And patients with a non-variceal bleed, we would give fluid resuscitation, but the NICE guidelines say that we shouldn't be giving PPI before um, endoscopy. 
That's interesting because I've often seen PPIs given before endoscopy. And actually giving IV PPI before endoscopy does reduce the evidence of high-risk stigmata at endoscopy and the need for endoscopic intervention. But even still, those are the latest guidelines. That's really helpful to know. You mentioned endoscopy there. And when it comes to scoping patients, what interventions can take place at that point So again, this sort of depends on the underlying cause. So for non-variceal bleeding, uh, if there's a peptic ulcer, then generally speaking, that will be treated depending on if there are um, high-risk stigmata, such as a visible vessel or a clot on the ulcer. So generally speaking, we try and give dual therapy. So that would be a combination of um, adrenaline injection, just to basically vasoconstrict and um, cause a temporary tamponade. Um, And if there's a visible vessel, then a mechanical clip, uh, depending on the position of the vessel and whether that's possible, feasible really, or the alternative would be heater probe to try and stop the bleeding as well. So that's really for peptic ulceration. But also if there is ongoing hemorrhage that can't be controlled with dual therapy, uh, so a combination of adrenaline with a clip or um, heater probe, then there are also the hemostatic powders that are available now, which can coagulate the blood as a temporary measure to stop acute bleeding that's uncontrolled by the dual therapy. So um, when it comes to variceal bleeding, so it really depends on the location. Uh, So esophageal varices are usually treated with band ligation. But if that doesn't stop the bleeding, then there are alternatives. So one of them is something called a Danis stent, which is a removable metal stent that can be positioned over the varices. And it actually can be left in for a couple of weeks depending on the competency of the endoscopist and whether they're used to putting danistents in, that would be one of the options. Otherwise, there's the um, Sengstaken Blakemore tube, which can be placed to compress the esophageal varices. And that can also be used if there's uncontrolled gastric varices. So just going on to gastric varices, these are generally treated with histoacryl glue injection and that can be quite effective in stopping gastric variceal bleeding. But again, if it's uncontrolled, then Sengstack and Blakemore tube can be placed. And then it's always important to think about the risk of re-bleeding and having a plan going forward. So in both esophageal and gastric variceal bleeding, we should be thinking about perhaps a TIPS. Um, So referral to a tertiary centre where TIPS is available. And what if you have a patient who is on an anticoagulant? Do you have to do things differently then? For example, if someone comes in on warfarin with an upper GI bleed? Yeah, so patients on warfarin, so I think everybody knows now that if patients on warfarin and they're actively bleeding, then call the haematologist because we can give Beriplex to quickly reverse the action of warfarin. Whereas if a patient's not actively bleeding, but their INR is raised and they've had a recent bleed, we can give vitamin K, but obviously that does take four to six hours to work and that is a given IV. 
So it really depends if the patient's actively bleeding or not uh, when it comes to warfarin. Obviously, there are a lot of patients on DOAX nowadays, but they do tend to have a shorter half-life. And I think there is going to be a new reversal agent for the factor 10A inhibitors, although I'm not sure uh, how many places have that available now. Uh, I was just going to mention about antiplatelets as well, actually, because the recent care bundle does actually advise anyone who's on aspirin for them to carry on with aspirin because actually the studies have shown that if you stop aspirin, there is a threefold risk of that patient developing an ischemic or a stroke event within the next seven to ten days. So I think the risks of are the complications of stopping aspirin outweigh the risk associated with carrying on during an, a GI bleed. So that's the recent recommendation. And with Capidogrel, I mean, that needs to be st- held off anyway. So you would hold off yeah, everything. Obviously, if they're on a Capidogrel for a coronary artery stent, then you would need to liaise with cardiologists before withholding it. Do you have any advice around reintroducing anticoagulants after a GI bleed is brought under control? Generally, if the patient stopped bleeding, if we've managed to achieve hemostasis, then the um, anticoagulation or antiplatelets can be reintroduced. So that's the general guideline. But obviously there are caveats. And like I said, with the capidogrel, if, if they've got a stent, then speak to cardiologists. And in terms of follow-up afterwards, so... Let's say a bleed's been controlled, you find the cause. Would you see that person in clinic further down the line? It depends on the underlying cause. So non-varicile bleeding, if it is a gastric ulcer, we would generally bring them back for a repeat endoscopy in about six to eight weeks' time just to make sure that the gastric ulcer is healed. The same goes for severe esophagitis, just to ensure that there's healing. With patients coming with variceal bleed, if this is the first presentation, then they would certainly be followed up by the gastro team. And would you give patients any lifestyle advice post-GI bleed? When it comes to peptic ulcer disease, if they have been on NSAIDs, then we would advise them to avoid NSAIDs. But if it is a variceal bleed in someone with underlying liver cirrhosis, and if that is alcohol-related, then the best thing that they can do is abstain from alcohol. Brilliant. Thanks so much for taking us through that so clearly. One more question. What do you like to do to unwind away from work? And do you have any advice for current gastro trainees listening to this podcast who have been through a tough couple of years trying to continue their training despite all the COVID-related issues that might have got in their way. Do you have any words of wisdom for them? Well, um, I think it has been tough for everyone, actually, for the last two years. And uh, I think essentially you have to find something that takes you away from thinking about work when you're um, away from the hospital and away from work and for me that's I like to read and I like listening to audiobooks that's probably my my favorite hobby but also uh, I've just started a sort of calligraphy course and yeah so I I quite enjoy just doing some calligraphy but it it is important because sometimes you know it's difficult to switch off especially if you've 
been involved with quite a difficult case, you know, a tragic case, um, when it, especially, you know, patients who come in with massive GI hemorrhage. It can stay with you for quite a long time. I think the most important thing is to actually talk about it as well and just try. I think it helps to offload, yeah, talking to your colleagues. Yeah, that would probably, it would help you get through that kind of event. If people listening to this are trying to get gastro experience and feel like they've got a little bit of catching up to do because of what they've missed over the last while, do you have any tips for trainees who might be feeling a bit stressed? I think that if you're determined enough and you're motivated enough to do gastro, then it doesn't really matter like the journey that you take to get there. I think you will get there if you're determined enough. You just got to never give up. It doesn't matter if you take, you know, a plain sailing route or a scen- more scenic route. But if you're determined enough, then you will do it and you'll get to your destination. It doesn't matter about the journey. And very last thing. How has it been for you? How has your experience of working as a gastro consultant been? It's been great, actually. I never thought I would be a, become a consultant. Yeah, because my training uh, was so extensive with research and having a family. But now that I'm here, it's it's great. I haven't yeah, I have no regrets at all. And what's, what's so good is that there's so much that you can specialise in. There's so much scope. You know, if you do get bored in one area, you can just branch out and try something else. And it always keeps you on your toes as well. Patients keep you on your toes. So there's never a dull moment. Lots for us all to think back through from that great chat with Dr. Rockman, who was so kind to come and meet me on site at East Surrey Hospital in the middle of her very busy schedule. We have been spoilt with brilliant teaching so far this series, haven't we? And there's still more to come. And trust me, it is well worth coming back for. Next up, we've got a bumper episode, a feature length episode, simply because there is so much to try and pack in when it comes to a topic like decompensated liver disease. So that is where we're heading next time when we'll be joined by Dr. Gayatri Chakrabarti. It's a fascinating, detailed conversation about what to do when the liver patients we see become more unwell. Definitely one that you don't want to miss. So please keep spreading the word about this podcast. Let's all try and make sure this teaching helps as many people in the specialty as possible. It's important for us to stay up to scratch with developments in gastroenterology And hopefully you find this podcast a beneficial and easy to follow way of doing that. We look forward to seeing all of you next time for another slice of Gastro News. Gastro News.